0: This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by our book, The Bowery Boys Adventures in Old New York. This is a history book unlike any other, if we do say so ourselves, (laughs) telling the remarkable story of Old New York, the port town, the revolutionary stronghold, the immigrant sanctuary, the Gilded Age City. And we tell this story using places that exist within New York City
1: right now. And today's show is actually inspired by one item that was featured in the book. Not to say that we're recycling our own material, Greg. (laughs) Not at all. But to take a deeper dive into subjects that we cover on the show and read about many, many others. Run out and get The Bowery Boys Adventures in Old New York. Available at your local bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. The Bowery
0: Boys, episode 259, Crossing to Brooklyn. The story of the Williamsburg
1: Bridge. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. You know, Greg, we always said that we would cross this bridge when we got here. (laughs) And sure enough, here we are. Today, we're telling the story of the Williamsburg Bridge. It's a it's a mammoth steel suspension bridge that connects Manhattan's Lower East Side with the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn.
0: The Williamsburg Bridge has the distinction of being the first bridge built by the consolidated city, or rather... Even more interestingly, it was started as a project shared by two separate cities, Brooklyn and New York, and then finished by one consolidated greater New York. Now the Brooklyn Bridge gets all the attention, but I actually find the story of the Williamsburg Bridge a tiny bit more interesting because it's linking two very different neighborhoods. One, a densely packed tenement district here in the Lower East Side, And on the Williamsburg side was a thriving industrial area with a residential district as well.
1: In today's show, we're going to be talking about how the bridge would affect and transform those neighborhoods and how it's even a story that is ongoing today. The bridge and the neighborhoods continue to change and evolve. So, Greg, why don't you take the honors of situating us a little bit more specifically about where this bridge is? To formally
0: introduce the Williamsburg Bridge to our listeners, the Williamsburg is the second great bridge over the East River, but the third oldest
1: in New York City. Can you guess what the other one is? Right. The the second over the East River, of course, after the Brooklyn Bridge, but the third in the city I'm going to go for something high, really (laughs) high.
0: It's a little bit of a trick question because the high bridge was never a vehicular bridge. Rather, it it transferred water to New York and, of course, later uh, pedestrians. But the Williamsburg Bridge is the third great one, completed in 1903. It is 1,600 feet long, or 7,308 feet if you add all the approaches from one end to the other.
1: Right, so specifically 1,600 feet is the length of that middle suspended span over the East River.
0: It is longer than the Brooklyn Bridge by 4.5 feet. (laughs) But they are, however, both the same distance from the water, 135 feet above the water. Now, a theme that's going to come into this show is that the Williamsburg Bridge is not considered a traditional beauty. Uh, It lacks the grandiose decoration of something like the Brooklyn Bridge. It, It, in essence, seems like an exposed steel skeleton.
1: It's often described as utilitarian, like it does its job without much extra flourish.
0: Well, it, it reminds one of a tinker toy. You know, it, it's, today there's like little kits in which you can build something like the Williamsburg Bridge. Much smaller. A <laughs> much, much smaller version. The bridge connects the Lower East Side at Delancey Street, goes over the East River, and then connects with Brooklyn between 5th and 6th Street. Or rather, should I say it connects with the neighborhood of Williamsburg, because that's what gives the bridge its name.
1: But it's interesting that they chose to name it after a neighborhood in Brooklyn.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, they didn't call it the Manhattan Bridge. And, and by the way, that name was still available. <laughs> it was. They didn't call it Brooklyn Bridge 2, Electric Boogaloo. Uh, you know, so one of the interesting backstories to me is that the bridge takes on the name of the neighborhood. And not a neighborhood on the Manhattan side.
1: Right. Now to not under- called the Lower East Side
0: Bridge. No, not at all. Or the Corlier's Hook Bridge, thank goodness. But to understand why, you have to understand the history of Williamsburg- itself. Williamsburg has always been a fiercely independent district of New York. At one point, it was literally independent. Consider it this way, Tom. Williamsburg had only been a part of Brooklyn for a few decades, since 1855. So when the bridge was constructed, this was still um, an unsettled relationship between Williamsburg and Brooklyn. Mm
1: -hmm. And like a decade ago, Uh, Believe it or not, you did a show, a solo show, uh, about the history of Williamsburg. Yes. A show that might seem kind of outdated at this point.
0: It's a rapidly changing area of New York City. That's true.
1: But could you just kind of give us a quick overview of the history of Williamsburg? Sure. The story begins with the
0: six Dutch towns that formed in this area that we would know as Kings County. That name, by the way, King's County, would be coterminous with the word Brooklyn, meaning that they are the same place. I'm only going to talk about two of those Dutch towns. One of them is that old stomping ground Brooklyn uh, near the area of the Fulton Ferry.
1: And we just did last month a show on
0: Dumbo. Which was founded near that original Dutch settlement. Now, the second one that I'm going to mention is the town north of here, the town of Bushwick, which back then, encompassed the areas of today's Williamsburg neighborhood, Greenpoint, and the modern neighborhood of Bushwick. Flash forward to the year 1802, and a man named Richard Woodhull, a land developer, bought 13 acres here in the area of today's Williamsburg, laid out a modest grid, and opened a ferry service connecting the farms of Long
1: Island to the markets of New York. So that would be happening at about the same time that Dumbo or today's Dumbo would be getting its first ferry service as well.
0: do you remember those original speculators wanted to call the place Olympia? Oh Olympia and that right, name yes. didn't stick Well, they were a little bit more successful with the name up here in this area. Woodhall named his little settlement something more modest, which is probably why it stuck, after the chief of the Army Corps of Engineers and the grandnephew of Benjamin Franklin. His name was Jonathan Williams. Now, Mr. Williams not only surveyed the land for Woodhull here, but I also have to think that this was a nod to military greatness, because what was being developed just south of this area, built in 1801, the previous year, the Brooklyn Navy Yard. This grew very slowly but steadily, bolstered by its connection to the East River. In 1827, the town broke away from Bushwick to become the village of Williamsburg.
1: But this early Williamsburg seems pretty far north of all the action, right? I mean, was... Yeah, it's a bit out of the way for a while anyway, right? But let's just pick a
0: spot in Williamsburg, for instance. Peter Luger's Steakhouse. Okay. You know where that is? Sure, yeah. If you were to draw a line directly west, right? Like, exactly west. Mm-hmm. Toward it, the river. Yes. It would actually connect, eventually, with New York City Hall. Just to kind of give you an idea of the map. Oh, if if we went true west. Yes, true west. Oh, interesting. So... So by the 1830s, the land in New York on the island of Manhattan would start developing in that area of the Lower East Side, thus directly across the water. From Williamsburg, that little development of Mr. Woodhull's would have a lot more leverage. And even by this period, we see a connection between Williamsburg and the Lower East Side. Ferries would go between here. They would share similar industries. In particular, shipping yards along East River would also use those across the water in Williamsburg.
1: So as New York City was growing northward, Williamsburg no longer seemed very far north. No, no,
0: no, not at all. Industries found Williamsburg desirable, and in particular, German immigrants began arriving here in large numbers. And German industrialists, for instance, started pouring money into the area, including in 1849, a pair of German cousins named Charles Pfizer and Charles Erhardt. They opened what would become Pfizer Pharmaceuticals.
1: But this whole time, this town of, of Williamsburg is its own area. Entity. It's not actually part of Brooklyn.
0: It's not Brooklyn. Brooklyn is a separate, modest settlement to the south, but the one that eventually grows and overtakes the whole county. Williamsburg, though, has a claim for that kind of expansion. And in 1852, they get a charter to become the city of Williamsburg
1: with about 30,000 residents at this time. But that new Williamsburg, that new city of Williamsburg would be different in one, at least in one very cosmetic way, <laughs> sure. than the Williamsburg we know today.
0: Well, we know Williamsburg; uh, it's the way that it's spelled is similar to the city in Virginia, right? Uh, but back G-E-N-O-H.
1: In, yeah
0: But but in the yes, but in the 1850s there was an H at the end, so it was Williamsburg. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> um, it would be phased out very slowly throughout the next decades. There's not a there's not a real particular reason. The H would be phased out? It would be phased out slowly, but it would come back and forth, you know, depending on who's talking, you know, well into the early 20th century. The, even the Brooklyn Daily Eagle would sometimes use the old spelling of Williamsburg. And there are a couple examples on the our subject, on the Williamsburg Bridge, that actually spells out Williamsburg with that
1: H. So when did Williamsburg actually officially become part of Brooklyn? It
0: would eventually be absorbed into the city of Brooklyn in 1855, along with Bushwick. The New York Times actually has referred to this as one of the first municipal mergers in American history, a harbinger for what would, of course, happen later with the consolidation of 1898.
1: So Williamsburg just has a history of getting folded into other (laughs) municipalities.
0: Yes, but still seen as separate. For even back then, most people didn't call it Williamsburg by the 1860s and well into the rest of the 19th century. They called it the Eastern District. Along the way, it would even have very different priorities from the rest of Brooklyn. While down south, you would have avenues of wealth and fine homes. Here, in this area, would be mostly working-class Irish and Germans – not to mention all manner of industries that are developing up and down the waterfront. Most notably, a very important one founded by a couple other German cousins, William and Frederick Christian Havemeyer, who opened a sugar refinery on the area of the Brooklyn waterfront
1: that we are about to speak about. And that sweet enterprise would evolve into the Domino Sugar Empire. Williamsburg would become a
0: very rich district, of Brooklyn, the Eastern District. Rich and w- <laughs> sweet and high calories. and Very, very sweet. But they had one real barrier to growth, and that was transportation. If they wanted to do business with New York, they still only had ferries from that shore connecting it to the Lower East Side. Not only were its connections limited, but those that were there were connected to a growing tenement district they certainly looked on with jealousy as the city of Brooklyn that they were now a part of became officially connected to the city of New York on May 24th, 1883, so almost 135 years ago today, with the greatest engineering marvel of the day, the Brooklyn Bridge. This would transform everything for Brooklyn. It would build up these districts south of the bridge. Thousands of people could now more easily access Brooklyn that is to say the southern parts of brooklyn
1: and we talked about in the dumbo show about how the opening of the brooklyn bridge led to a boom in development and land values in brooklyn and farther into brooklyn but all of those benefits were not being felt up here in this eastern district no it was they were giving the eastern district
0: a cold shoulder Almost, you know, pushing all that, all of that new development further into Long Island and almost leaving Eastern District behind. A news report from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle from 1885 said, quote, At present, the Brooklyn Bridge ends easterly in a blind alley, just where engineering necessities happened to place it. A few hundred feet away is a point where the streets to South Brooklyn, East New York and Williamsburg focus. With the bridge extended to that point... Every section of Brooklyn would profit by ease of access. So they were trying everything possible to kind of get in to the Brooklyn Bridge Mm -hmm. with extensions, whatever. There was all this talk of, you know, trying to connect it at least more conveniently to Williamsburg. But of course, the plans would blossom and advance into a different direction for the Eastern District into a bridge of their own.
1: A bridge of their own indeed, and we'll get to the birth of that bridge, the Williamsburg Bridge, after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma
0: City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today.
1: In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, So you were just talking about the the great success of the Brooklyn Bridge. I just want to throw out a statistic at you because this is really telling. When the Brooklyn Bridge opened in 1883, there were ferries serving 120,000 passengers a day between Brooklyn and New York. However, 13 years later, when construction would begin on the Williamsburg Bridge, ferries were still serving 120,000 passengers a day. And the bridge was serving 150,000 people a day. So the city was obviously growing, There and there was another need for another bridge because the Brooklyn Bridge was operating, basically, at capacity.
0: Predictably, the Brooklyn Bridge created a property boom, a land boom around the area of the Brooklyn Bridge and, of course, over on the New York side as well, but not in areas like the Eastern District.
1: Right. And, you know, all of Brooklyn was actually footing the bill because it opened under two different cities. So Brooklynites were all paying for this bridge that was leading to an increase in land values for an unequal of the population. Not everybody was benefiting in Brooklyn the same. So for many decades, people up here in Williamsburg or the Eastern District had been talking about and dreaming about a bridge of their own that could also benefit them ease their businesses but also help out their property values. Now on the New York side
0: they may have had a different motivation for mm-hmm. wanting for wanting a bridge because we're talking the lower east side which is the most densely populated area in the entire world and the city was just trying to come up with different ways to get these people out of there of course it was developing Elevated railroads and trolleys and streetcars and all those types of things to help people, to help facilitate movement. But that wasn't enough.
1: Well, as city leaders in New York City were obviously eyeing a new bridge into Brooklyn as a way to get people from the Lower East Side tenements into healthier living environments. And so you can see a bit of a conflict here between two separate cities, two separate populations, with two different perceptions about this bridge that was increasingly being discussed. So, were there
0: actually people? plans after the Brooklyn Bridge? I mean, how immediately did this uh, this kind of get dreamt up in people's minds?
1: There were even plans uh, before the Brooklyn Bridge was finished. As Ooh. early as 1882, in fact, Williamsburg leaders and uh, prominent citizens were meeting to discuss a new East River Bridge. And the talk was that it would go from basically Grand Street in Manhattan over to Williamsburg's Broadway. And these Williamsburg residents would mobilize and and pressure their politicians to support this new plan. And it proved to be very popular, obviously, with the locals, but unfortunately, it would go nowhere.
0: Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, was there a particular reason why it stalled so quickly?
1: Well, it stalled because of the opposition from ferry companies. Uh, Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, they have huge power back then. Huge power. But I mean, really, Greg, who's afraid of some ferry companies? (laughs) Well, it turns out that the politicians in charge were very, oh, afraid. very afraid of the fairy companies. And that okay. led to nothing. But six years later, in 1888, the state senator Patrick McCarran from Williamsburg uh, started pushing out aggressively for an actual bridge to be constructed. Now, I just have to interject here that, you know, last week
0: we got to talk about the widening of Varick Street, which is one of your pet subjects that you want to do as a whole show one
1: day. Ah, oh, felt good to talk
0: about Well, it. mine is Patrick McCarran. He is a very fascinating politician and basically is kind of the father of Williamsburg
1: but unfortunately we'll just have to park it for a little while (laughs) we'll have to park that for a while but McCarran
0: Park is named after him and so I'm not surprised to see his name attached to this
1: no he was he was a prominent citizen of Williamsburg in the 1880s state senator so he started pushing in the 1880s for this bridge to be constructed but the problem was uh, that, you know, even though Williamsburg was all for it, New York City, on the other side of the river, didn't want to pay for it. Uh, so McCarran even compromised it. Okay, fine. Brooklyn would pay for two-thirds of it, and New York would pay for a third of it. But even that was rejected. But what about the power
0: of the elevated railroads? Because uh, they're up and running by this time. They must
1: certainly have a need to cross over as well. Because, of course, the subway wouldn't be open until 1904, but the elevated was the way that this city that was experiencing explosive growth was getting around. So it's true that the second big plan for a Williamsburg bridge would come about in 1892 by Frederick Ullman, who owned elevated railroads in Brooklyn. And Ullman saw a huge opportunity in taking his elevated railroads, his Brooklyn Elevated Railroads, into Manhattan. So his plan called for not just one bridge, Greg, but two bridges that would cross the East River to bring him more business. One would cross basically around today's Williamsburg Bridge, but another one would touch down just a bit south of there in today's Corlears Hook. And that plan was actually passed by the state legislature in 1892. Two bridges. Right. These two bridges would receive a charter. They would get the green light from the state legislature. But these plans would be dashed and tossed aside because of the political influence of Manhattan's elevated railroads. Oh, a bridge too far, I see. (laughs) Two bridges too far. (laughs) But fortunately, third time was a charm because obviously the citizens of Williamsburg were starting to get annoyed. Lawmakers in Albany established a commission for the construction of a new East River Bridge. However, they had a problem. They could only move forward with their plan to construct the bridge if they could buy an existing charter. Now, maybe I'm getting too into the weeds here, (laughs) but let's just say that the only way that they could construct this bridge was if they bought... Allman's charter that had already been passed by the state legislature. A charter is like a just permission, a right. piece of paper. It's not like an object, <laughs> <laughs> right? No, but they but they still needed that permission. Alman, the railroad magnate, then tried to you know negotiate, with spin some deals with them. In the end, they would pay him two hundred thousand dollars for the charter, which allowed them to to build a a, a bridge from Grand Street to Broadway in Brooklyn touchdowns would be obviously adjusted a little bit he tried to negotiate whether or not he could run his elevated over this new bridge for free in the end he didn't get that uh, but they did buy his charter for two hundred thousand dollars all right well let's get this bridge started
0: then Please. <laughs> what who was the chief architect on this project
1: a man whose mother may have stuttered when she uttered his name uh <laughs> leffert leffert's buck stuttered when she uttered his name Lefford Lefford Buck? Leffert, Leffert's Buck. His middle name is the same as his first, but with an S. That sounds like a beginning of a Broadway show tune, but let's keep going. Well, Buck had been a captain in the Civil War uh, and then studied engineering. He headed off to New York and worked with Washington Roebling on the construction of Brooklyn Bridge. So, you know, he had very good pedigree. From there, from Brooklyn, from the Brooklyn Bridge, he headed off to South America, where he was building railroad bridges, Under some very challenging conditions and built quite a reputation as a problem solving engineer. So he seems like he might be the
0: right man for the job, but Mr. Buck, was he known for uh, his
1: elegant structures, his beautiful structures? Well, anybody who gazes upon the Williamsburg Bridge today may not be surprised to hear that Buck was not known for his particular focus or attention to aesthetics. When designing bridges, using steel was still pretty new at this time, which might explain why the bridge looks like it does today. You mean exposed steel, like steel as an as an
0: element on the exterior. Right. People tended to garb that in marble and stone and all sorts of different things.
1: Although there were structures beautiful structures that were designed in a similar fashion if you think about the eiffel tower for example one can see similar similarities between the eiffel tower and the trusses of the williamsburg bridge
0: you know if most if, if anyone saw exposed metal in that particular way they usually thought the railroad and no one ever called the railroad track beautiful
1: Which makes sense because his final plan uh, for his bridge was predominantly a bridge to serve the railroad and trolleys and also pedestrians and cyclists. It was not, I mean, there were pathways, uh, roadways for carriages, but those were really minimized. This was primarily uh, to get people via trains and trolleys between the two cities. There were even, I think, up to six Lines of track
0: uh, for trains to go over the bridge. Yeah, for trains and uh, trolleys. Yeah, which is a big deal. Um, What what are some other notable features of the bridge?
1: Well, the fact that you you said at the very beginning that this would be the longest suspension bridge in the world. The entire structure, more than 7,300 feet long. uh, But that central span, you know, 1,600 feet long. It would also be the first suspension bridge constructed with towers made entirely of steel. Those 350 foot tall towers, which were made even stronger because of their steel construction.
0: They almost look like precursors to transmitter towers today. They have that kind of same feel, that sort of sturdiness and and lattice of of metal.
1: And and those would be holding up, of course, the four giant cables. The four main cables uh, that were supporting that span were 18 inches thick, a foot and a half thick. But notably, you know, those hold up the central span, but they don't hold up the side spans that are leading from the anchorages up to that central span. And what of those trusses? I love uh, a good truss. I love trusses on bridges. Do you trust me? <laughs> well, the, the Williamsburg Bridge was the most trusted <laughs> trusted bridge of its time when it opened. <laughs> it's a defining feature. The 40-foot tall trusses running the entire length of of the of the bridge it looks like a a giant cage that's spanning the bridge and you're inside of it when you cross it and those trusses give the bridge its strength well this sounds like an incredibly sturdy mighty bridge very
0: strong how did they go about getting this built
1: well the first thing to do in 1897 was to construct the caissons which were built over in williamsburg and then floated out and sunk into place Uh, You found, Greg, a Brooklyn Daily Eagle souvenir uh, edition, a program uh, that was published as part of the opening ceremony Mm -hmm. of the bridge in 1903. But part of that program showed a series of photographs of caissons being constructed and then floating out in heavy tides um, into the East River and being sunk very dramatic caisson-related <laughs> photographs. Well, and this was a big deal
0: because, of course, the when the Brooklyn Bridge was constructed, those caissons, it was quite an engineering feat to get those done. But several men died in the construction and the firm planting of them in the East River.
1: And here there was much less drama. I mean, the only drama that they were writing about were the tides that they were up against as they were floating the caissons out. However, Despite all of the smooth sailing, there there were problems at uh, the top, unfortunately. The group controlling the project uh, called the New East River Bridge Commission, was not proving itself to be very efficient. These members had been appointed by both Brooklyn government and the New York City government, and things were not progressing very quickly. The bridge was being constructed too slowly. And on top of that, the group was racking up tremendous legal costs. And meanwhile, by 1897, the only thing anybody was talking about was what was about to happen on January 1st, 1898. That would be
0: the consolidation of New York, the creation of the five boroughs and the making
1: of greater New York City. And the mayor of the new city of New York, Mayor Van Wyck, was a reformer. And he looked upon this bloated New East River Bridge Commission, which appeared to be dragging its feet while collecting handsome salaries. He looked upon them as a target of his reform. He took matters into his own hands. And in a most dramatic fashion, less than three weeks into his new position, he fired the entire gang. From the New York Times, quote, Mayor Van Wyck removed the old commission of the new East River Bridge yesterday and appointed a new commission to take office immediately. In making the change, the mayor said, quote, The old commission was going on too slow. At the rate the work was progressing, it would take from 10 to 15 years to build the bridge, whereas in the opinion of competent engineers, it could be completed in two to three years. And this new commission is going to do the work in this time, or I shall remove them, too. So how chaotic. They just
0: replaced everybody while the bridge is going up, like halfway, when it's halfway finished.
1: Well, some of the members of that commission didn't even know uh, that they had been fired until they came back to New York. Some were away on business and came back only to be told that they had been fired. Can you imagine (laughs)
0: Some of them may have found out in a tweet, which I guess back then was just a A bird. (laughs) It
1: was an actual bird. And there'd be more changes at the top that would take place. In fact, in 1902, when the next mayor, Mayor Seth Lowe, would actually be tired of Mr. Buck and his unesthetic ways. And he would look for a new bridge commissioner, a new... Uh, a new bridge architect, somebody who could dress this thing up a little bit. He was ready to pass the buck. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but who would want to take this project? Because, you know, you now have this half-completed steel of viathan stretching across the water. It has no Beaux Arts finery attached to it. None. There were, you know, no no reliefs of gods or marble columns or nothing grandiose. It was just plain. It was this long festering administrative nightmare. Now everyone who had. Been been working on it had been fired. So who are they going to pull in? Who would want that job? Well, Mr. Lowe brought in a, an up-and-coming engineer by the name of Gustav Lindenthal. And he was the he became the bridge commissioner, and then Lindenthal brought in another man named Henry Hornbostel. And Henry's job, believe it or not, was to make the bridge
1: prettier because people were talking about the fact that this steel skeleton, this thing, was not going to get any prettier. That was what you saw was what you were getting. Yeah,
0: and keep in mind, 1902. The Mm -hmm. bridge is almost finished. (laughs) This whole thing kind of sounds like a mess at this point. Yeah, I mean, Lindenthal would later be known for great bridges like the Hell's Gate Bridge and the Queensboro Bridge. Mm-hmm. But this is... Who, who could who could handle this? There was a litany of issues here. And it was so late in the game. I mean, the wires, the cables were already being stretched over the bridge starting in 1901. The wires, by the way, from John A. Roebling's son's company. Oh. They were hired in 1900. Roebling, of course, famous for the Brooklyn Bridge. The pedestrian path had even been laid out the previous year. So, I mean, the most of the parts were assembled. So, like, what what could
1: could, Yeah. And how was this Hornbostel supposed to uh, make this bridge more beautiful? I mean, it seems like that would almost be like putting, you know, frosting on a kind of industrial cake.
0: Hornbostel was a Brooklynite. He was a graduate of Columbia University. He went to the Col de Beaux-Arts in Paris. You know, he's the guy you want to make things pretty. He's the guy you want to hire. But this was an impossible task. He's actually quoted as saying... The Williamsburg Bridge can never be made to look well, no matter how much it is padded. Its angular lines may be softened, but that is about all that can be done. He submitted his softening designs on December 20th, 1902. He actually brought the finials. To the bridge towers. He brought the finial. Who are the
1: finials? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, no, that's a design component. Yes. It's it's it's, it's You not mean a, like little peaks? Yeah, they're like at the top of the towers. That, you know they, how they jut out? At the very top, how they jut out just yeah. a little bit. It's almost like they're wearing each tower is wearing two little hats. Like
1: that's the finials. That was his big addition? That was his big softening?
0: Yes. Uh, uh, and <laughs> and then
1: what were the other things? <laughs> Well,
0: <laughs> let's, let's just say this. When you walk a ride over the bridge mm-hmm. and you if you're doing that, you see maybe some kind of old school elegance a little bit here or there, like kind of in the corners. Mm-hmm. Those are Hornbostel's contributions. But there's not that many, actually.
1: But, you know. To be fair, maybe we're focusing too much on the aesthetic criticism of the day uh, that was lobbed at it and less how we feel about it today. Because, I mean, it wasn't really until recording this show that I sort of became aware of the fact that it was considered such an ugly duckling. It's hard to believe, right? But back in the day, everyone was
0: kind of aware of of this unfortunate lack of beauty that it had. Lindenthal, even when he was interviewed, he would just do some very delicate pivoting away from its appearance and would keep reminding people of how strong it was, how strong it looked and how sturdy it was while it was being constructed. So he would kept he kept reminding people that it was more like a muscle man and less like a beauty queen.
1: She was a handsome queen. <laughs>
0: Well, the bridge finally opened in a very extravagant ceremony on December 19th, 1903, featuring one of the greatest fireworks displays in New York City history. Fireworks fanatics recall this as one of the finest moments. Because
1: that is quite a claim, Greg. It yeah. must have
0: really been something.
1: <laughs> I mean, the
0: the bridge wasn't even done at this point they opened it but it wasn't done which part Uh, wasn't done the pedestrian walkway wasn't done there were many elements But the
1: central span was
0: finished as the brooklyn daily eagle snarked quote the williamsburg bridge is so far from completion that the opening ceremonies on saturday will be symbolic rather than a celebration of an actual achievement
1: (laughs) well at least they threw the party on
0: time The party was exquisite. Flawless. (laughs) However, the critics were less than kind. To quote the Scientific American, "'The East River Bridge is an engineer's bridge, Mm. pure and simple. The eye may range from Anchorage to Anchorage without finding a single detail which suggests controlling motive, either in its design or fashioning, other than bald utility.'"
1: So we keep coming back to this word utility. Yeah. Um, not popular with the critics, but what did the man and woman in the street think yeah. about this new bridge? Many of them
0: saw it quite closely on April 24th, the following spring, when the pedestrian paths finally opened. It was estimated that over 25,000 people crossed between 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. on that date. Wow. However, I know we had been bringing up elevated trains like this was one of the principal motivations, but it wouldn't be until 1908 that people would actually be able to ride over the bridge in an elevated train, which, of course, this would evolve into the
1: subway. Right, when the system would later be expanded. But we also said that there were trolley tracks going across the bridge. Yes, that's right.
0: That's right. There were BRT, streetcars that began crossing at the end of 1904. And just especially for them, there was a spiffy new plaza terminal built for them on the Williamsburg side. There's actually a, you know, a decorative, kind of gorgeous little part of that. Back then, it was known as Washington Plaza. It used to be a far more finer and impressive. Of course, they've cut the BQE through it these days, Wrecks some of the aesthetics.
1: There there's still parts of that there today, but I've never... I've never heard of it called Washington Plaza. I'd heard Continental Army Plaza, but I'm assuming that Washington Plaza uh, took its name from the Statue of Washington. This oh,
0: day. yeah. There, there's an equestrian statue. It was dedicated in 1906. George Washington is indeed standing, watching the streetcars as they embark upon the Williamsburg Bridge. It was sculpted by Henry
1: Mervyn Schrady. But not far from Washington on his horse is um, is a interesting domed building.
0: Yeah, a very striking building right next to Washington there. It was the old Williamsburg Trust Company, which then became... Magistrate court. Today, it's the home of the Holy Ukrainian Autocephalic Orthodox Church in Exile. Now, this detail brings me to what I think, and I think most people would agree, the most important result of the construction of the Williamsburg Bridge. In particular, those pedestrian paths. There were hopes that this bridge would relieve all of that neighborhood overcrowding on the Manhattan side. Mm -hmm. The bridge, you know, cut right into the Lower East Side Tenement District. I didn't even get to the widening of Delancey Street uh, as that approach into the bridge and how that displaced thousands of people.
1: Because Delancey and even parts of Spring would have to be widened in, in order to make those approaches. To accommodate
0: the bridge. But once the whole project was eventually completed, the residents of the Lower East Side were encouraged to cross the bridge over to Brooklyn. And this meant, of course, the core population of the Lower East Side.
1: Who, uh, in the turn of the century here, would have been primarily Eastern European Jews. As
0: early as opening day, the New York Tribune nicknamed the bridge the Jews' Highway. This wasn't exactly a smooth transition. On the Williamsburg side was a German neighborhood called Dutchtown, uh, which had some resistance to the new Jewish immigrants who were crossing the bridge to make their homes over here in brooklyn
1: right because just a few decades earlier i you know was just mentioning how those brooklyn residents saw the the bridge as an opportunity to increase their land values and maybe a lot of immigrants moving into the neighborhood wasn't going to lead to that
0: but often overlooked is the fact that many of the germans were actually jewish as well Mm -hmm. you know it wasn't religion at first that was really the separating factor, but rather the regions of the world and the wealth, because many of the people over here in Brooklyn were wealthier than those who were coming over from the Lower East Side. But eventually, as the new Eastern European population displaced the German one, they would bring a more orthodox form of faith into the area that there are many, many reasons for this, uh, partially because it's they couldn't really make a place of their own. There was less of a need to assimilate. You could create more of a closed community here than the tenement districts where you had people from all parts of the world mm-hmm. living next to you as your neighbor. By the 1930s, Hungarian Hasidics arrived to the area, and then they would bring ultra-Orthodoxy.
1: So really, then it's not an exaggeration to say that the opening of the Williamsburg Bridge isn't just an event in New York City history, but it's an event in Jewish American history as well. Uh, Yeah. Many of Manhattan's
0: Jewish neighborhoods, though, would be vacated in the early 20th century, the Williamsburg Bridge being one of the motivating factors. And then those neighborhoods would then be filled by new populations, Puerto Rican, African American and Chinese. Writer Henry Miller, you know, Henry Miller, who was born in Yorkville, he said of the bridge, quote, After the Williamsburg Bridge was thrown open and the exodus commenced, even the cats were ashamed to remain in the old neighborhood. Hmm. So there was a real sea change going on in greater New York, which was kind of a planned thing. I mean, that's what they wanted the, the boroughs to accommodate these new populations so they could be a little bit more spread out. But a little bit of the old country was being lost here as these other neighborhoods in Manhattan would transform. Generally speaking, through the first few decades of the 20th century, the bridge brought further growth into Williamsburg. But before we move on to our sort of final event, I did want to add that in 1919, when Theodore Roosevelt died, a couple years later, there was a resolution introduced... Uh, to the Board of Aldermen, which was led at the time by its president, Fiorella LaGuardia, there was a resolution to rename the bridge Theodore Roosevelt
1: Bridge. But alas, that resolution went nowhere.
0: No, they instead opted to name something else for Theodore Roosevelt, the park that surrounds the American Museum of Natural History, and it still holds that name today.
1: Now, before we get into the big changes of the 20th century, we thought we would just mention that today's show is brought to you by WeWork, which provides more than 200,000 members around the world with space, community, and services through both physical and digital offerings— WeWork currently has more than 212 physical locations in more than 66 cities and 20 countries around the world, including 50 in New York City, and including one that literally faces out to the Williamsburg Bridge. Yeah, the South
0: Williamsburg location is enormous. And I think it's one of my favorite WeWorks that I've ever been to, frankly. A lot of space to work, a lot of great amenities. Again, I happen to like that area of Williamsburg. Right. You've been spending a lot of time
1: (laughs) uh, working out of that location. And it's the location where we uh, hosted a trivia party just last week and got to meet many of our listeners. That was a blast.
0: Yeah, that, that was a very fun time. And it was partially because as it was in a cool space. WeWork has beautiful collaborative physical spaces for teams of any size. Their community features more than 200,000 members who collaborate in person and digitally. And they have an app that lets members connect and work virtually with other members around the world. And they have, of course, formal and informal events at all their locations, and especially that one in South Williamsburg, to encourage these connections.
1: To sign up to win a free month long membership at a WeWork near you, go to we.co slash Bowery Boys Hot Desk. And we'd like to thank WeWork for their support of the Bowery Boys. And now back to the bridge. So, you know, you left us with this possible name change uh, that didn't happen. But already before then, remember, the bridge only opened in 1903. There were almost immediately problems with the bridge because Mr. Buck had taken a couple shortcuts uh, during construction. There were problems with with corroding cables already in the 1920s. Uh, there were there were parts of the bridge that were rusting in the 1930s and 40s. But things really got bad. In later decades. By the 1960s, uh, there were reports of rust falling down on commuters, of loose guardrails that were in danger of tipping over and falling right into the East River. This is sounding treacherous. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hold on. It got even worse in the 1970s and obviously into the 80s because the city had implemented a budget-saving, cost-cutting policy called deferred maintenance, which we should really do a whole show on sometime. Deferring maintenance does not sound like a good plan. (laughs) The plan could be summed up as basically, let somebody else fix it later. That clearly was not a good idea in terms of giant infrastructure projects like bridges. And a study in 1978 found that some of the cables that were holding up the bridge were actually corroding and they, they were in danger of snapping and the bridge itself was in danger of collapsing.
0: What could the city do? I mean, at this point, I mean, it's almost like they should just chuck it all and start it over,
1: right? Well, those, you know, that was one of the possible solutions. They really only had two possibilities. Right. Fixing it piece by piece seemed preferable and cheaper. It would cost about $250 million to do, but that had never been done before. Nobody had actually ever fixed up a bridge like that, basically replacing the bridge while keeping it active. But the alternative to that, to build a brand new bridge, would cost at least twice as much and would be even more painful, and they'd have to shut the whole thing down in the first place. So, so the city sat around throughout much of the late 70s and early 80s debating what to do about this, this bridge that was more than an eyesore at this point. It was actually dangerous. How dangerous exactly do I, should I even dare ask? <laughs> Well, by the 1980s, pieces there were pieces of the bridge that were literally falling off of it. Cables were snapping, 200 had already snapped. Uh so in 1985, they they actually started replacing a third of the supporting cables. But that wasn't enough to stabilize the bridge, and a new study came out that showed that the that the suspension cables themselves would only last until the mid 1990s there was a real urgency to get this fixed immediately, or it could cause a real catastrophe. And and they especially recognized one of the four main cables, which they called cable D, as the weakest link. It was deteriorating faster than the others. And meanwhile, the anchorage on the Manhattan side had cracks in it and was also, like, faulty, so it couldn't properly support the span. Well, I mean, thank goodness it just didn't collapse under
0: its own weight at some point.
1: Especially given the fact that even at this point... There were 84,000 subway riders a day going over the bridge, not to mention nearly 90,000 automobiles. Well, how did they get this all sorted? How did they finally get it fixed up? Well, after briefly having to shut it down in the spring of 1988 because of some more terrifying defects in the bridge, Mayor Koch decided to keep it not to scrap it and replace it piece by piece, even though that would be costly and take longer. He said, quote, What we're doing will be a model for all bridge builders. And that project would take a couple of decades and the new bridge would be revealed uh, sort of in, you know, in piecemeal fashion. For example, in 1992, there was a new bike path that was opened. The subway tracks were replaced over the course of 1999. Um, there was another pedestrian walkway that was opened that same year in 1999. I mean, meanwhile, here you know, you and I were going across the bridge in <laughs> 1999. Remember yeah, sure. when those new parts of it were being opened? We didn't really realize at the time that they were being... Reopened because the old ones had fallen apart. (laughs) Because of the dangerous element of them. We just thought that they were shiny and new. And cause for celebration. But the big celebration happened in 2003, when the city feted the 100th anniversary of the opening of the bridge with far fewer fireworks than they had done a century before. Why wouldn't want to set this thing ablaze? At this point, who knows? (laughs) (laughs) But today, walking across that bridge, really, you know, in... In contrast to walking across the Brooklyn Bridge, in which you're often joining a sort of parade of tourists um, and photographers, Instagrammers. When you walk across the Williamsburg Bridge, you're joining a parade of locals for the most part. What I find amazing is a passage that I found in this book, The Bridges of New York, by author Sharon Rear. The book came out in 1977, And she said, quote, The neighborhoods at both ends of the bridge have declined as business centers since the beginning of the century. Now, few pedestrians cross the Williamsburg Bridge. And and then she notes with some whimsy, about how the Williamsburg Bridge had been designed for pedestrians and for cyclists. And she just sort of laughs off this notion in 1977 that pedestrians and cyclists would really want to cross that bridge. And they would never
0: return and would want to, yes. Right, so really
1: 41 (laughs) years after this book came out, I feel like we've kind of come full circle with the Williamsburg Bridge and with the neighborhoods that are sitting on both sides. Neighborhoods that are, unfortunately, more expensive than they've ever been. But that bridge continues to be an incredibly active conduit connecting those two places. It's
0: a great place to people watch and, of course, city watch, because you can look down into the Brooklyn Navy Yard and Mm -hmm. like the shore of Brooklyn, and then you can look northwards towards all of the lights of midtown Manhattan.
1: You may know, Greg, that before I arrived at the podcast studio today to record with you, I actually hopped on a city bike at the Manhattan base of the bridge and made my way across. Today is, you know, a day before yet another snowstorm. It's pretty cold outside. (laughs) But there still were were quite a few of us up on the bridge making our way across. I found it amazing to be reminded of how the neighborhoods that are being connected by that bridge today are neighborhoods that are really undergoing vast Mm -hmm. changes. They are like... It's almost like that bridge is connecting two different construction sites.
0: (laughs) Of constant change. Um, One final note that I want to make. If you want to see the Williamsburg Bridge in a more unusual and mysterious light, the marvelous film noir movie called The Naked City, uh, which is extraordinary for so many reasons because it films on location in the 1940s. The finale, of the, the breathless finale, Tom, of that movie takes place on the Williamsburg Bridge. Did We're not going to give it away. No, no, no. But I just find it like an interesting creative choice. And it really shows off the strength and sturdiness <laughs> that Mr. Lindenthal himself would have proclaimed. So check that movie out. For some spectacular photographs of the Williamsburg Bridge and its construction, go to our website, BarryBoysHistory.com.
1: A huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bowery Boys. It's because of you that we can spend our time producing the show. When you head to Patreon, you'll see some of the bonuses uh, that you get for signing up as a patron of the show, including audio extras and including things like advance invites to events like we had the other night. We'd also like to give a shout out to the New York Historical Society, which is hosting through June 3rd, 2018, a fabulous exhibit, New York Through the Lens of George Kalinske. Kalinske
0: was the official photographer for Madison Square Garden and Radio City Music Hall and captured some of New York's most iconic cultural moments over the past 50 years, sporting events, legendary performances, and notable occasions that have defined the city.
1: So check that out at the New York Historical Society, nyhistory.org. So thanks for crossing
0: the bridge with Tom and I for this episode. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not.
1: See you real soon.